What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Grabs Podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what we do here. But in case you stumbled in or this is the first one that you're hearing, our goal is simple. It's to highlight our wins and learn as much as we can from actual fire ground rescues in the hopes of making us all a little bit smarter and a little bit more effective and efficient. Our guest today likely needs no introduction for those of you into the job. We're fortunate enough to get a chance to chat with and learn from Captain Tom Johnson of East Metro Fire Department outside Denver and one of the guys from Fit to Fight Fire. For those of you that haven't heard of Fit to Fight Fire, please do yourselves a favor and check them out. They put out a ton of solid content related to mindset, ethos, physical fitness, optimizing operations, et cetera, et cetera. Fit to Fight Fire just also released a 45-minute podcast of Tom and a handful of others directly involved uh, in this rescue that we're talking about today, uh, where they kind of dissected the rescues from multiple different perspectives. And it's one of the best podcasts I've heard in, in quite a while. And if you dig this show, you're definitely going to want to check it out. So welcome to the show, Tom. I'm stoked to get a jam with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate you bringing me on. I'm honored to be here. Absolutely, man. Uh, super stoked. So can you tell us, uh, just uh, give us a little background on you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, your experience, and your department. Yeah, so I work just outside the Denver metro area. Uh, we like to call it East Metro Fire Rescue, uh, but it's a uh, department in the Denver metro area, eastern suburb. But uh, I've been there since 2008, and during my time there, I've you know spent time as a paramedic, a lieutenant. Now I'm a captain on a ladder company. And uh, prior to promoting to captain, when I was a lieutenant, I spent about two and a half years at our training academy, where I was a lead instructor for uh, recruit academies. And that's to me when I talk about a journey in my career, I think that's where professionally my career really started to take off. And, and when I say take off, I mean, I started to really learn about the job. I started to really invest in it. And I was investing on all different angles, whether it was tactics. Um, I was already invested fitness wise, but uh, leadership, you know, surrounding my, myself with people that made me better. That was where I really started to figure it out. So, um, you know, that's when Fit to Fight Fire started taking off for John and I, about 2014-2015. We started uh, taking the social media following that John had already created and more or less took it on the road. You know, started speaking at some conferences nationwide, locally, and then uh, developed the podcast in 2017. And over that time, you know, we've uh, met one more person that's come on named Craig Stalloway and between the three of us, you know, we've, we've got this great inner circle that uh, we all feel is, is challenging each other on a daily basis, uh, just making us better. So, you know, currently, again, I'm on a uh, ladder company and um, just work, uh, you know, that normal 24-hour shift schedule. Nice. I want to circle back in a minute to your time in the training division, because I think that's something that doesn't get enough discussion in the fire service. And this yeah. one's a little bit more nebulous, but what's the search culture like within the department? What I mean by that is kind of who typically searches, how many crews are searching, and, and how do you prioritize search typically? I think where I work, uh, search has a high priority. You know, we follow that uh, life safety as the first priority. And um, I, think, I think with any department, it's probably dependent, you know, the level of search that people are willing to commit to or the the as extreme culture as it might be 
uh, is dependent on probably the crew itself. Maybe, maybe the officer, maybe the back seat, but it's probably dependent on the crew itself. But for the most part, um, it's, it's promoted as, you know, let's get inside, let's get to these people, let's get them out there, let's protect egress, let's, let's find people inside and help them out. Let's life safety is number one. So you know, it's something we train on uh, with, I can speak for my crew really only is uh, something that we train on pretty regularly. And uh, we try to make it as realistic as possible because as we found out, you know, about a month ago, uh, if it happens anywhere, it will happen at say East, West, East Metro. <laughs> so who typically does the searching? Is it uh, a truck company or ladder company? Is it engine? Is it, you know, the second or third arriving or how does that typically look and how many crews are typically searching? And let's just for, for a frame of reference, talk about a single family dwelling. Yeah, I'd say that that single family dwellings are bread and butter fire. So typically the latter companies will do the search. And typically we like to split our four person crew and put two interior and two to outside vent. Okay. And so that's the, that would say that's the, again, the bread and butter fire. If we go to a multifamily, you might see, you know, the whole crew take a search, you know, assigned to a division on a specific floor. And they might have to put everybody inside depending on, you know, the circumstances of the fire. Um, if for some reason, you know, the truck, the first arriving truck company does not get there uh, in a timely fashion, they're delayed, then you could see a second arriving engine be assigned search. So it, it, can, it can be assigned to really any apparatus, but typically our accepted practices give it to the latter company. That makes perfect sense. And kind of to build off that last question, as much as I'm interested in the product, obviously, I'm just as interested, if not more so, in the process. Um, so you mentioned that you try to make search more realistic. So kind of a two-part question. How often do you train on search? And then how do you guys try to make search more realistic? So it's really dependent. I mean, you know, we'll train more on search when we have, say, a well, if somebody asks to train on it, that's, you know, somebody who's really willing and wanting to learn, but, you know, obviously you get a new firefighter on your station that's, that's learning the job. We'll spend more time on it than we do if it's just all, all of us seasoned guys that, that know what we're supposed to do. But uh, fortunately for us, where we're at, we have somewhat of an acquired structure that we can go use and we can treat it like a hotel and we can treat it like uh, an apartment complex with, uh, you know, interior hallways. But in the process of that, we've more or less developed a three different styles of search and then we're able to practice there. You know, the first one is, is, uh, if we're, you know, that typical right-handed left-handed search, you know, that's just kind of your basic what to fall back on when you have high heat, no visibility, you know, and you, you don't have a hose line in place. Uh, we will stay together more or less and go one room at a time makes sense so like one guy might anchor at the door just to keep an eye on conditions and the other guy will search the room and then come back now if we have visibility and we're and we don't really have that much heat then we'll actually split search and we could move down say different sides of the hallway in this case and uh we just kind of use the the can in the middle of the hallway that we have with us as like the marker mm -hmm. and so you never move more than one or two doors ahead of the other guy. You are in communication when you come back into the hallway each time. 
and you know you just move the can up to the the door you're at and you kind of it, it's more or less like um just moving down the hallway each person one to two doors at a time and then if if it's a little bit uh, let's just say like no visibility but the heat's not a big issue you're not worried about potential like conditions flashing over or trapping you then then uh, we might stay on one side of the hallway and just leapfrog each other okay so we'll be in in a room we can search it and then as you come out the room you're going to pass the next room which your partner should be in check in with him real quick and then move one room down does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah it's that, and those are kind of just like our i guess that's that's part of the playbook right yeah um we practice BES regularly. You know, it is something that uh, we talk about, you know, going in and going beyond the door. Um, we really believe at, at the station I'm at that the quicker you can get inside, the quicker you can make a difference. And if, if it means going inside through a window rather than a door, if you can get to the third floor faster that way than going up three flights of stairs, then we're gonna choose that option. So you said there's three kind of types of search. You mentioned wall search. Um, and in that you kind of talked about maybe an oriented search or what, what I kind of consider oriented, you mentioned split search and you kind of went on two different types of split search, uh, based on conditions, really based on, on heat and fire conditions, not so much visibility. And then is that third one then is that VES or, yeah, okay. I guess, you know, and, and again, it's like, um, you know, it VES to me is just, you're going to still use the some of the same types of methods of search i just talked about your just entrance your entrance location is different you know yeah absolutely yeah there's a lot of overlap if this was a venn diagram between all three of those types of search but i like to try to pull them apart like you're doing as well and differentiate them um okay so let's start kind of setting the stage for the the rescue that we're going to talk about before we do that, can you talk about what your first alarm assignment consists of to a multifamily dwelling? Uh, meaning, what are your staffing and resources? How many rigs are you sending and how many guys and girls on each rig? So a first alarm fire response, whether it's multifamily or single family, you know, we'll go three engines, two ladder companies, and two chiefs. Okay. And if we get any signs, like in this particular fire we're going to talk about, if we get any signs in route or when we get on scene, uh, anybody can upgrade that to a working fire, which gives us a few more apparatus. And then if we go to an additional alarm, we'll get two engines in a truck after that as well. So in each apparatus that goes, we're a four-person minimum staffing. So we'll all have, we'll all have four people on each rig. Okay. Perfect. So you're sending on a first alarm before you call working fire, you're sending that 20 boots on the ground, uh, minimum staffing. Roughly. Yep. Okay. Perfect. And there might be a couple other, you know, we have, we have, um, two person rescue companies in the city that, uh, primarily their assignment is, is to run lower acuity medical calls, but they are firefighters and they do have packs and they do get assigned to fires as well. So you might have anywhere from two to four or more people that might show up. When you say the word rescue, is that an ambulance? Is that what they're arriving in or is that some other type of apparatus? It's more or less a pickup truck. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about the rescues that you guys made or rescue that you guys made? Uh, kind of, I'm going to throw a bunch at you. So, so pick what, what sticks, but uh, what was the date? What time of day was it? What was it dispatched as? Were there any reports of victims? 
Um, and then kind of what rig were you on? Kind of everything before we got to the fire ground, I guess. All right. And I think probably the best way to, for me to answer that is just tell you kind of the process of going in route and arriving on scene. I think I'll probably hit all those answers for you. Beautiful. So uh, this particular night was about 11 o'clock at night. This is a double company house. So both rigs, the engine and the ladder company were dispatched to this fire. Uh, this was a first due fire. <clears throat> excuse me. This was a first due fire for uh, the ladder company I was on and a second due fire for the engine company. So we roll out of the barn at the same time. Uh, we're part of the first, again, the first alarm assignment and the notes coming across the screen and everything from dispatches. We got parties trapped. We got people jumping. We got multiple callers. And so that's, that's all the signs you need uh, to know that, okay, we're going, we're, one, we're going to a working fire. So I called that right as we were actually exiting the firehouse. And so that got everybody kind of in that game mode. Okay. Like we're going, we're going to a good fire. Like we're, we're going to be doing some work. And so in route, a lot of the same thing, just more calls, more people jumping, more people hurt. So, you know, we add more ambulances and um, the first arriving unit on scene was an engine company. They sized it up. They did a pretty good job of sizing it up. They mentioned everything that was already given to us on the notes. So they confirmed that the reports were accurate, that everything we were being fed and route were accurate. And then we, we arrived on scene and were assigned to the Delta side of the structure where the stairwell, which was a garden, this was a garden level structure with uh, two floors above. So more or less three floors, but the first floor being garden level. Though that stairwell on the Delta side was fully engulfed in flames. And then we had a lot dark chugging smoke out of most of the windows on the third floor. So we got a center hall apartment. We got two stairwells, one at Bravo, one at Delta. So you have a center hall of, um, apartment complex, but your stairwell is on Alpha and then your other stairwell is on Delta. So that other stairwell had a little hallway that teed into the main uh, okay. hallway. That makes how sense. Many, how many units was, uh, was this? Was this, you know, three units per floor or was this a decent sized structure? I want to say, maybe, I'm not sure if I want to say six to eight per floor. Okay. So we're looking at, you know, 18 to 24 units, something like that. Yeah. I'm a lot of families. It. Yep. Yep. Okay. And so I can remember pulling up on scene and, you know, we were assigned to rescue on the Delta side, still got three sides of the structure as my guys started you know, pulling ladders off and, and uh, getting to that Delta side and didn't really see much um, action on the Bravo side. Mm -hmm. The Alpha side was pretty quiet as well. I mean, just people walking around. But then when you got to uh, the Delta side is when you saw, you know, people being dragged by neighbors. Uh, that had apparently jumped a lot of fire, a lot of commotion, a lot of people yelling. Um, there had already been painters ladders that were sitting on the side of the building that just happened to be there. You know, I, apparently someone probably was uh, using that to store their ladders that live there that they might use for work. Okay. Those have been, thrown, those have been thrown to a couple windows already. By you guys or by civilians? No, by residents or okay. citizens on scene. Okay, so you guys got there. You are captain of the truck. Um, you're tasked with rescue. Can you kind of walk us through what happened once you arrived on scene and everything up through the rescue? Yeah, I mean, 
back up a little bit to, you know, the people I was going to the fire with. So I think it's important to, to point out, I'm on a ladder company that I'm not normally on. So this isn't my normal crew. However, the two guys that are in my back seat, I've spent some time with and probably more importantly than spending time with them off duty. I, when I say spend time with them, I mean, I've spent time with them, um, training, you know, I spent time suffering with them. Uh, one of the guys in the back seat that I ended up going inside with and searching with Jonathan Cox, we went to firemanship this year with him. He came out and taught with us. And when we did our 24 hour class out there. And so John had spent some time with him as a probationary firefighter. We invited him to come out. We had suffered with him, right? So this is a guy that I already trusted before we even showed up at the fire. And then in the other backseat position, Jack Taunton is a probationary firefighter. He's no longer a probationary firefighter, but when he was, uh, and I was an engine company captain, he was assigned to um, our firehouse. And we were a very aggressive engine company. We trade, we trained all day and night sometimes, and he bought into every, every bit of it. And this is a guy that wants to learn, wants to get better. And he's, he has very good backseat intuition. Both these guys do. They can make decisions independently of me having to tell them what to do. Like they know what needs to be done. They're not afraid to take the risks to make it happen. Um, they know why they're doing the job, you know, so I'm, I'm showing up on what is a career fire for me, for all of us. And I've got two guys in the back seat that I really don't have to give assignments to. They know what needs to be done. So that was a huge part of the success of this fire. So when we show up on scene, there's not much conversation. There's just, we all know we're going to the Delta side. Um, I do my 270, so to speak get to the Delta side, those guys are already throwing ladders. And then it's, okay, so how are we gonna get to the third floor? And I initially go inside this stairwell, that's like I said, it's, it's on fire from the garden level to, to the third story and the, and the actual window that's on the second story landing has already failed. The doors open on the garden level entrance. So I go in, I'm passing a lot of fire, I get to, the second floor and that's when I'm thinking, okay, I'm passing a lot of fire. I don't know exactly where I'm going on the third floor because I, I haven't, there's no like other floor I can get to to give me a layout and I, I don't have a hose line in place. And so I made the decision, just it was one of those instinctive decisions. You know, I can't even say that my thought process was more than three or four seconds, but I just turned around came back out thinking we got to get in there a different way. And that's when, when I came back out, the ladder had already been thrown to the third story window. One of the windows that was chugging pretty, pretty heavy smoke, you know, floor to ceiling. And I said, okay, we're going to VES this window. And as we're doing this, you know, we're getting people behind us. I, I, I never made eye contact with the people yelling, you know, the civilians on scene, but I am taking this in and, you know, Hey, there's somebody in that window, the one to the right, there's somebody in that window. Now we couldn't get into that particular window that this male was yelling about because there was a shed in the way and just limited personnel and the ladder would have to be in an angle. It just, it wasn't the most, um, I guess, feasible option. Mm -hmm. So we decided to go into the one next to it. So 
that's one thing that I've talked about with the guys since this fire is, you know, we were going to VES and I knew that we were going to go beyond the door before we even went in, you know, so Jonathan Cox, he climbed to the top of the ladder, cleared the window out, uh, cleared the sash out, then hopped in. I followed up behind him and we, we got in the first bedroom and I remember turning to him and just saying, okay, you know, we got to be on our A game right now because this is high heat, low visibility. We know someone's in here. We got to find them. So just stay in constant communication. You know, this wasn't the, this wasn't the fire that we could be anchored to a wall. You know, I said, I'll go left, you go right, but not necessarily on a wall. Just let's work our way around the room. And then hopefully we'd meet at the door. And that's exactly what we did. We got to the door and uh, went beyond the door. I mean, at that time, that was the first time I checked in with them and said, hey, I'm going to go into this other bedroom. I knew there was another room over there. So go out into the hallway, the hallway with inside the apartment itself. Okay. Find the other door, uh, which wasn't, I mean, maybe 10 feet or so. Go in there and then worked our way around that. At that point, I believe he was following me. Um, but I, I'd say within like another minute, I found the victim close to the other window at the base of the window. And I had radioed command saying we have a victim. And I don't know if I, I can't remember if I even had to yell it inside, but I mean, within seconds he ran over, found me and we were both there with the victim. So going back to painters, ladders, stone at windows, uh, that's when I reached out the window and was looking obviously for a ladder to our window so we could get this victim out. And it, you know, the, the painter's ladder is much different than the ladders we carry. And so I reached out the window, picked up one of the rungs and just started picking it up and banging it up and down, you know, and so could notice. So someone could notice you. Is that yeah, almost like, Hey, you know, we've got a victim here. It's been over the radio. Um, let's get a ladder up here. And that's exactly what, um, you know, the other guys outside, they took that and they did the right thing. They got that painter's ladder out of their way. They brought another ladder over. And uh, that's, that's where Dan DeJesus DJ comes in. Cause he's the one who got that other ladder over to the window we were at. And he's the one who took the victim down the ladder. Once Jonathan and I got her up to the sill and, and out onto, out onto his arms. So you mentioned we got center hall apartments and in my head, and, and I don't know much about East Metro. Um, but I'm thinking that most exterior windows, rooms with windows are going to be either bedrooms or living rooms. That first room that you went in, is that a bedroom? Was this a two bedroom apartment? Correct. Okay. Yep. Okay. And then when you got to the lady, how big was the lady? You know, um, I didn't really know then. I mean, it was big enough that it was very advantageous that we had two of us there to lift her. Now, okay. could, could one of us got it done? Yes but it, it would have been very rough on the victim, so to speak, you know, um, because unconscious, unresponsive, um, you know, we all know what, so to speak, that, that weight, that dead weight feels like, right. No pun intended there, but, uh, it, it's, it's very different. And so, um, I would say, yeah, I mean, a couple hundred pounds, you know, just estimate, you know, 150, so, 100, I'm not sure. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so this is 11 o'clock at night. This is her bedroom, I'm assuming. What were conditions like in there when you actually found her? 
So you still had a, a, no visibility uh, except right at the window, you know, so I could poke my head out and then I could yeah. see a little more, you know, but uh, you had moderate heat and then you had no visibility. Now, an interesting fact is, and found this out actually after some of the news stations around here did a feature story on her and her family. So what happened was, and I'm assuming the, the beginning of this was there's fire in the stairwell, there's fire in the hallway. Everybody's going through the hallway screaming, saying, get out. People open up their doors. They see fire. They don't close their doors. They freak out and run. And now we have flow paths everywhere. And now we have fire spread, right? So everybody runs to their windows. Uh, this fire grows, you know, it's growing probably doubling in size, like the, like the statistics say, every 15 to 20 seconds. And her husband or significant other jumps out from the third floor first. And she then drops some of the kids or helps some of the kids, you know, they range all different ages to him. So he catches the kids. Wow. And then she goes down, I'm assuming due to smoke inhalation or the heat, whatever, after that. So she just wasn't able to make it out. So it was hot in there, you know, obviously we got our gear on and, and we're protected, but, um, you know, hot and smoky enough that, you know, maybe if we got there a little sooner, it might've, uh, you know, might've made a difference for, you know, but, uh, I wouldn't say that, uh, I would still say it was survivable, you know? Yeah. You know, low in the low in the room, it was still survivable, you know? Absolutely. I mean, most, when you look at a lot of these fires and we talk about, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm right there with you. Like I never want to classify thing as survivable or not. If there's someone in there and we can get to them, that's what we're, that's what we're paid to do. That's what we swore we said we would do, you know? So I don't really talk about survivability that much. Um, I think searchability is the better word and it was definitely a searchable apartment. Yeah. I love that mindset. I'm, I'm right there with you too, with, with how you're, you're uh, viewing this. Um, so a, a decent size uh, victim, you drag her to the window technique wise. How did you, and, and was it Jack? Is that who you're with? So I'm with Jonathan. I'm Jonathan, with Jonathan. Hoff, yep. So how so, did Jonathan get her up to the sill? So we just kind of worked together. I, you know, he was on the head, I was on the feet. Mm -hmm. And um, once the ladder got thrown through that window, we both picked her up, kind of got her on the edge of the bed, then repositioned, and then, um, you know, head first, I handed her out the window to DJ, who was on the lad top ladder waiting. Okay. And, uh, you know, you listen to our podcast and I think, you know, one thing, one thing that I will never forget in, in, in for the rest of my career, and it's such a cool story. Obviously, I'll never forget this, this night or this call, but we are in the middle of the most intense action of this fire, right? We're, we are lifting a lifeless victim up to the sill, onto a ladder, teamwork, everything, right? We've been searching for, you know, five to 10 minutes. We're doing work, right? Search is one of the, you know, the most demanding tasks on the fire ground. And here's Jonathan leaning over to me saying, hey, hey, slow your breathing down, you know? And yeah. it would, it, not only did it slow my breathing down, which is great. I mean, it was so cool just to hear that. Like one, you've got a guy who just came on our department, he's a year or so. He feels comfortable enough to say that he knows how important it is, right? 
he knows how important it is for us to conserve air because we've still got more work to do. But just for him to say that, it not only slowed my breathing down, but it, it slowed the game down for both of us. It was like, oh, okay, let's reset. Time just slow the task, right? Yeah, let's just slow it down. Like, let's slow the breathing down. You know, when you're breathing slower, you're going to think more clear. You're just going to focus on the task instead of just kind of maybe some wasted effort that might come out, you know? There's definitely that feedback loop that you get when you, specifically through breathing, where your physiology starts controlling your psychology, which controls your philosophy, which then controls your physiology again. And you can either use that to your advantage or to your disadvantage. And so kudos to Jonathan. I mean, oh, a yeah, your guy cool. to be that mindful in that moment, like that's, that's impressive right there. Yep. Yeah. And as it turns out, it, you know, something like that may have extended our cylinders enough that we were able to complete that primary search. And had he not been able to slow it down, maybe we breathe them down a little bit faster and then, you know, you never know. Uh, we have to exit earlier and there would have been, there could have been someone else in there and it's just, it's a domino effect, right? Absolutely. You know, we all are, are cognizant enough and we know enough that that speed is directly proportional to saves. And so if you don't get that primary done, now it's going to take longer for another company to get up there. And now anyone else that might be in there, now their survivability, their chances of survivability are going to then, then decrease. Exactly. Yep. So you're obviously, you know, incredibly fit and, and well put together. How important do you think it was to this operation for you and, and your partners to be physically fit? Like what I'm guessing of what I'm asking here in kind of a roundabout way is, would it have been more difficult if you were in worse shape? Are you making a joke? No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm no, I know. I just, uh, I think, I'm giving you I think any, no, I think any firefighter knows that, you know, whether you want to admit it or not, if the fitness isn't there, the motor can't run and the job can't get done. Now tactics are important and being able to know what fire behavior does and, the, the most common places that you find victims to target your search and all kinds of stuff, right? Training comes into it, uh, being comfortable in your gear. But if you aren't in shape, you can't do this job. And that's the fact. So, you know, man, that's just something that I've really valued even before I got in the fire service, uh, playing sports into college. I always viewed my fitness as the one thing that I could control prior to showing up for a tryout, for a game, uh, for practice, and, you know, now for the fire ground. And it's like, I've got no excuse. If I show up out of shape, that's all on me, right? I can't blame anybody else because I have complete control over my fitness. So had, had one of us, even one of us, been out of shape. And, and when I talk about these guys, I talk about Jonathan Cox, I talk about Jack Thompson, I talk about DJ who are instrumental parts of this rescue. Every single one of them are gamers. I mean, they just love to get after it. I, I don't know if anybody loves really punishing themselves in, in the weight room and just, but it's just, but you kind of do, right? Like when you finish, you feel much better about it, you know? Absolutely. After there's no better feeling than after you're getting done with your workout. Right. I mean, I think everybody grinds going through it. Yep. It's like before you start, it's like, all right, here we go. And then you finish. And it's like, yeah, that was another good one, you know? So, 
you've got all these guys that are in, in phenomenal shape. They know how important it is to doing the job and doing it well. And it just all came together that night. So had, had we, had we had somebody that was out of shape or like, we, got, we like to say deconditioned. I don't know if this rescue happens. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a lot slower. Maybe there's some catastrophic failures, you know, because one thing I talk about with DJ taking the victim down the ladder, uh, it didn't look easy. And he's kind of on his own at that point. Everything's on him, right? Um, we get a victim on the ladder, we find her, and then the fire department drops her from the third story, you know, or the, the ladder falls, whatever. None of the work we did even matters. It doesn't matter one bit. So he's got he's to be on his A game too. And it's just like, it's one of those things on the fire ground. Like you, there is no room for failure. You cannot fail at that. And, you know, if you are out of shape, if you can't dig deep, if you can't hold on to, you know, those rails while you got a, a body, you know, pushing you down and you let go, we got a problem. Uh, but these guys, I, you know, I think, you know, DJ would lose his arms before he actually let go, you know, they'd, they'd come out of, they, he'd dislocate his shoulders before that he'd give up. You know, this is the type of guys that they will put everything out there and, and never give up. And that was, that's the biggest, you know, the mindset going in to this fire on, on these guys was huge, big part of the success. Yeah, I really appreciate your answer to that question. The reason that we started, or I started answering that, or asking that question was that as we were going through and listening to the first, you know, couple dozens of these, there's been a couple patterns that, that are repeated. And one of the ones that I've noticed is that just the importance that everyone is, is stressing for physical fitness and how taxing this actually is. Um, and how by the time they made it out, they had, you know, a minute or two left in their bottle or their lower alarm was going off. And if they were in worse shape, it could have ended up differently potentially. So I, I think that's important that we ask that question and, and it's nice to know uh, your answer to that question. Well, and not only physical fitness, but being in your gear, all right. Being comfortable in your gear was yeah. the next major player in this, right? So we, we just, we practice in our gear all the time, you know, in the, in the summer months when it's hundred degrees outside, we do evolutions in it. It's hot. It's, it's hot. You know, you want to just rip your mask off. You don't want to wear your hood. You don't want to be in structure gloves, but it adds heat. It replicates the fire ground. And so then when you're on this fire, it, you've been there before, you know, you've been there before a lot in training. Now you don't even have to think about it. And so I can remember, uh, you know, we, we practice, we always train with our tool as well. So putting the tool between our pack and our SCBA, like between our back, you know, on the backside and as, as Craig Stalloway labels it, he calls it the Ninja Turtle technique. I don't know if we you call it, that. call it turtling here too. There you go. All right. So see, I'm the one who's out of the loop here. And I, yeah. that's the first time I heard it a couple of weeks ago, but anyways, you know, that's something that I had a tool with me the entire time on this search and I didn't even know it was back there just because I was so used to it. I knew I had it but it did not impede me one bit. It was not uncomfortable. I yeah. wasn't uncomfortable in my gear. I wasn't uncomfortable uh, you know, on a cylinder, breathing a cylinder all the way down. I've done it so many times before. It was just 
this is like another rep almost, you know? Yeah, I think that's a more important information too that doesn't get discussed quite enough either. I think we could keep talking about, you know, I want to go on like seven tangents on stuff that, that you've kind of keyed me in on throughout here. But I think just in the interest of time, we'll, we'll go to the last couple questions here, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure thing. Um, and maybe you've already touched on, on this next one. Um, but what's one lesson that you learned from this fire that you'd like to pass on to the listeners? So I would say the, when we went back over this fire, I've thought about it pretty regularly since it happened. And one thing that uh, I've always said about throwing ladders that, that actually came into play on this fire was I've always said uh, when I'm teaching new guys or, you know, somebody might ask me that's even a tenure guy in the department about ladders. Now, I'm not the be all end all by any means, but I believe people need to start throwing ladders as if there's going to be no one there to foot them. So I always say, you know, I get there's a rescue angle, but on fires like these, we don't have the personnel that where two people can be on a ladder, right? So one person's operating on and the other person's footing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say throw a ladder like you're going to throw it at your own home to get on your own roof where nobody's going to foot it. You know, so some of the ladders on the scene were thrown at the proper angle, but with the footing, so on concrete and yeah. a guy operating at the tip, clearing out a, a window, that took another person to foot the ladder while that was operating. And that's where I think, you know, we got to get in that mindset of sometimes we need to throw ladders at a more steeper angle so we can operate on them without needing personnel to foot it, you know, and that's for these, these type of fires where we're limited on personnel and we have a ton of tasks that need to get done. Okay. So let's say that you're flowing or you got that, that same building and you have a 14 foot ladder that you can't make any shorter and you're going to division two, let's say, let's say it's cement. How do you throw that ladder? Um, because you can't get that steepness that you normally want. How do you kind of self heal that ladder in that instance? Is there anything that you can do for that? Hmm, I mean, you know, a lot of our 14 foot ladders have roof hooks on them. Yeah. So if, if there is availability in the window and it, you know, the, the sill is exposed or the window is open, you could potentially use the hooks to go around that and, and possibly get it, you know, short of um, a lot of times it's, it's tougher on like, like blacktop, you could sometimes take say a Halligan, right. And pound it in or something. Concrete's going to be more difficult, you know, uh, maybe if there's a ridge in the concrete, you know, or, you know, you could stand joints and stuff. Exactly. Um, you could use that and, and potentially go even more shallow if, if it requires it. But if you've got something there to stop it or you find something, you know, I'm just thinking like something heavy and I don't know, you know, maybe you find a picnic table that's in an area and you can just move it over and put it up against something, you know, I mean, one of those things, right. It's like the more you, the more you train and uh, look at like getting out in your own first two area and training that stuff, I think that's the more you start thinking about audibles and that, that by, by that sure is an audible. Right. And so that's what we have to do on these fires is just figure it out. Well said. I like those answers a lot. I like these kind of divergent questions where we're trying to figure out like, all right, what's, I know what I have to do. What are seven different ways that I can try to do this right now? I think that is a whole different type of, of knowledge. Um, and so I, I appreciate your answers for that for sure. All right. Last question we got here. 
has this fire changed your mindset towards the job, how you train or how you search at all? No, I don't think so. Um, what it did is it proved to me that that Super Bowl that I've been training for that I didn't know was going to happen is going to happen. And so if anything, it just confirmed like, all right, I still need to get after it. I still, everything that I was doing, you know, I just need to keep doing because it happened once, probably going to happen again. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the whole thing. Some people can go their entire career without getting it. And I'm almost 13 years in, didn't know if it was ever going to happen, something big like this. And I didn't know if it was ever going to happen. So just knowing, is that on my end? I think so. Okay, hang on. Might have to edit this down. <laughs> All right, that seems better. Um, you know, on going on this fire just proved to me that I just need to keep training. Like I need to keep getting after it. I need to stay on my A game because you never know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. It's nice that you had that that kind of foundational belief and, and this didn't shake it. It didn't shake your foundation. It just fortified it and made it stronger. So that's just nice. Affirm, just affirm that everything that, you know, I'm doing and we're doing as a crew and, you know, that we preach at Fit to Fight Fire is like, be ready, you know, be ready. Would you want, you know, you showing up to your own home? You know, those little things um, I, I mentioned on our on our podcast about the Winston Churchill quote about, you know, being ready for your finest hour. And if you're not, what a tragedy. And that has motivated me and kept me disciplined for years. And so go back at that now and go, okay, I'm not so sure I classify it as my finest hour. Um, maybe there's more, maybe there'll be something more intense. Maybe it won't even involve firefighting. You know, maybe my finest hour will be something outside of it, but uh, you know, like that just keeps me, on that path of discipline to make sure that I'm ready, you know? I think that's one nice thing about when people get to listen to, to stories such as yours is, you know, I'm 14 years in at this point in time. I haven't had my Super Bowl yet. Um, so it's nice to know that there's plenty of other people in the same boat as me that don't go to seven fires every single day, um, that are lucky to go to, you know, 15 fires in a year or 10 fires in a year. And this can absolutely happen. So it's nice to fortify that here in stories such as yours as well. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I've, I was able to more or less hear other people tell their stories to know that, okay, this is possible. Yeah. Now, I guess, you know, I can hopefully be that vehicle for some other people to learn or to affirm like, hey, this can happen, you know, this will happen just the way, the way things are, you know, like, uh, whether it's bad people doing bad things that, that, that put people in these fires or just accidental starts, you know, it's just like, it's going to happen, you know, just the way the fire grows and traps people and puts them in a, in circumstances where they can't get out themselves. So you just have to kind of stay the course and, and make sure that you're doing everything you can to, to, uh, live up to the oath. Well said. These vicarious experiences are, are super valuable for, for everybody um, because too many of us don't go to a ton of fires. Um, so it's right. nice to hear, hear these things and kind of reaffirm your beliefs. Um, and there's not enough talk on our wins, I don't think, in this world, uh, this world being the fire service. It's a lot of talk about LODDs and, and when things go sideways. 
but not enough about uh, how this operation and what caused this operation to go well. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yep. So Tom, anything else you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? No, I think that's it, man. And you got more questions, shoot them my way, but whatever, I'm, I'm good with whatever. Perfect. Well, we'll sign off here for those that, uh, that haven't been to Fit Fight Fire or it's been a minute since you've been there, go check them out again. We'll also include the, um, the, the link to the podcast in the show notes, or we'll try to do that. Uh, I hope Grant knows how to do that. I send this off to Grant. He's the, he's the, the brains behind the operation. So hopefully we'll show, we'll link your Fit to Fight Fire podcast in here as well, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that'd be great. Perfect. So thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today, Tom. We really appreciate your time. For everyone listening, if you or anyone else you know makes a grab, please go to firefighterrescuesurvey.com and fill out a quick survey. That's one survey per rescue. So we can all get smarter, better, and faster. And if you make a grab and want to share your experience with all our listeners, please reach out to either Grant Schwalbe, Justin McWilliams, or myself, Nick Ledeen, and we'll try to record an episode. Thanks, Tom, and everyone else listening to this. Take care. Yeah.